to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we're going to be talking to someone who's spent nearly two decades hunting for a flower he's never actually found and discussing your favourite wildflower finds this year. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday night between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Anyone who has found a flower growing wild in Britain and Ireland shares a picture of it and you'll be amazed by how many plants are blooming, even at this time of year. You don't need to know anything about botany, all you need to do is to look for wildflowers whether on your walk to work or on a lovely long stroll through a nature reserve. Our first item comes from a man who knows a great deal about native wildflowers, but his passion is for a plant he's never seen in bloom in Britain. Sean Cole runs the Ghost Orchid Project, which hunts for Britain's most elusive orchid of all. The Ghost Orchid hasn't been seen in Britain since 2009, yet every summer Sean and a team of volunteers comb the woods of southern England to try to find it again. I asked Sean why on earth he bothered. So Sean, what is the Ghost Orchid? What does it look like? And why is it called the Ghost Orchid? It's a tiny little plant, typically in the UK, probably five centimetres up to maybe 15 centimetres, but 15 centimetres is exceptional. And it's kind of a pale, creamy white stem with whitish flowers with some pink markings on them. So it's quite indistinguishable because it tends to grow in dark woodlands on the ground in amongst leaves. And it's surprising in dappled sunshine how similar it looks to those leaves when the light falls on it. The unusual thing about it, though, is that it's not got any green in it because it entirely lives its life based on parasitizing fungi, which is one of only four species in Britain that does that, which means it's completely capable of growing in the dark. And where does it grow? So in the UK, it grows across the whole of Europe and Asia into Russia. But in the UK, we're at the very far northwestern end of its range. So historically, it's been found in what would essentially be called the West Midlands or the Welsh Marches of Herefordshire. But it's also been found in the Chilterns in Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. And when you're saying it's been found, let's just be clear here that it's not something you can have a day out where you know you're going to find it, is it? No, basically. Um, Over the years since it's been found, it was first found in 1854 in Herefordshire and last seen in 2009 as a different site in Herefordshire. And in those times, apart from a single site in Buckinghamshire where it was seen quite regularly for about 30 years, it's been seen basically very intermittently. So apart from that particular site, it's probably only been seen maybe 10 or 15 times in that entire period of time. And have you ever seen one growing in this country? No, unfortunately, although I have been looking for 17 years now it's just a matter of keep going keep looking because it doesn't flower in the same place exactly the same place every year and it doesn't even flower every year because it needs certain light and soil and moisture conditions but because of that it's just a matter of keep going to the sites keep looking keep your eyes really keen and then hopefully you'll find one if you're really lucky. You have seen one abroad presumably. You have seen a ghost orchid in your life or have you not? I have yeah yeah I've seen them several times. There's a site in southwest Germany which has famously had them and at one point again that's a similar thing really because back in the 1920s that site I've told the photographs of this woodland where it carpeted the floor like snow. The first time I went was in 2005 and we saw about 600 ghost orchids so it's quite a good site for them but as of last year it only had about 13 so it's a really that has really gone bad over the years as well because the soil is gradually drying out and it needs damp under soil conditions. And you run the Ghost Orchid Project with a couple of other botanists as well. What does that involve? Finding the ghost orchid is so difficult 
we decided we needed to try and visit as many of the sites as often as possible throughout the season because the thing is it, it might come up and then a few days later it might get eaten by a slug or it might get covered by leaves or whatever so we thought well look if people go as often as possible to check obviously without damaging the habitat to as many of the sites as possible we're just basically increasing our odds so we've got a load of volunteers that join up they get given key sites near to where they live or, or where they're able to visit several times and they just search the area as much as they can as carefully as they can in the hope of uh, having the coverage to the uh, season really. And you must have had some possible sightings over the years. Well yeah we've had I mean I myself have had a number of occasions where I've seen you know an old bird's nest orchid which is a similar looking thing or there's another thing called yellow bird's nest which is quite similar it's, it also lacks green leaves and there's also the possibility of say a fungus where if the heads come off it or if the head's slightly deformed that can look very like a ghost orchid from a distance. In fact I was sat in the office earlier on this year and I had a, a WhatsApp message from one of the ghost orchid project volunteers saying I think I might have found a ghost orchid and this is the site that I talked about earlier, the one where it flowered for nearly 30, well, 30 years plus. And I was sat there waiting for this message to come through because he said, I'm going to send you a picture, I'm going to send you a picture. And meanwhile, I was closing my computer down, getting my coat on, making sure everything was ready to go. And the picture came through and it looked quite a lot like a ghost orchid, but unfortunately it was just a fungus. <laughs> Why do you do this? What drives you to look for this orchid that you might conceivably never see in your lifetime? But lots of people listening will understand the appeal of botany more generally of the excitement of finding a new weird flower but of actually dedicating yourself and setting up a project to something that you're not actually sure is there what drives you to do that i think the rarity of it is exactly the reason we do it because in the past there have been sites where secrecy has surrounded the orchid because in the old days you know back in the 20 early 20th centuries it was the kind of victorian collector's instinct so people would go and see flowers and especially rare ones have a collection of those things so they'd dig them up cut them whatever else and i think that attitude kind of lasted almost up until recently really so a lot of the sites for the really rare ones were kept very secret and what that's meant in the past is a couple of ghost orchid sites where the secrecy itself has meant that the people managing those sites have actually ruined them to some extent in terms of taking trees out replacing them with non-native trees and actually potentially wiping out the ghost orchids at those sites in fact those two sites where that's happened it hasn't been seen since so in a way it's it's about the orchid really it's not about us seeing it although I have to say because the only orchid species I've got left to see in the UK and that itself is a reason to go and see it of course or to try and see it but it's more about finding it so that the people that manage these sites are aware that it's there and then they can do something about managing it so that it becomes more common and less less rare. And the Victorians were, as you say, famously obsessed with collecting orchids. They suffered from orchid delirium. But is orchid collecting and orchid theft still a problem today? Yeah, it still happens. There's another orchid called military orchid, which is restricted to three sites in the UK, although there's been a recent discovery in Hertfordshire of a single plant. But military orchid, there's a famous site where people can go and visit, but even at a site that was well-managed and quite well-known, someone dug some up four or five years ago. They got arrested and found, but I don't think they got prosecuted in the and so the problem is people do occasionally still do it. What do they plan to do with these plants once they've dug them up? Is it just for their own personal garden collections? I can't imagine orchids would transplant that well, given, as you say, a lot of them have fungal relationships that keep them going as much as photosynthesis. 
I guess they're quite pretty and orchids are famously collectible, aren't they, in terms of having them in your greenhouse or wherever. But I think, yeah, it, presumably it's some kind of ignorance in that they think that they're going to be growing in their garden or they can sell the tubers, perhaps. They are sometimes used to make this thing called salet, which is used in ice cream and is, is supposed to be an aphrodisiac. But I think that's less so here. It's more on the continental ones. But yeah, I suspect it's ignorance. I mean, even ghost orchid was dug up originally, moved in all good faith to move it away from an area that was being trampled and moved into a garden. But of course, it's just impossible to grow. That was Sean Cole on the quest to find the ghost orchid. He didn't find it this year, but a lot of you have been sharing your favourite wildflower finds from 2017. Hashtag favourite find was the idea of my co-leader on wildflower hour, Rebecca Wheeler, and she explained why she was enjoying looking back over everyone's discoveries. So Rebecca, you set up the favourite find hashtag for the winter months. Why did you do that? Well, I'm new to Wildflower Hour and um, when I discovered it last year, it was just before the winter. And I noticed last winter that lots of botanists were showing again their photographs in the summer. And I just thought it was lovely and it really helped me. And I thought this year it would help beginner botanists because you know what to look for in the summer months and you can think, oh gosh, I'd really like to see that for myself. And of course, on Twitter, on Wildflower Hour, they always put where they've seen it as well. So I thought that would be amazing if we could do that. And what have your favourite, favourite finds been that you've seen that people have been putting up so far? I've really enjoyed the orchids and there's been some really lovely stories as well of um, people finding orchids with their parents. With, there was one lovely story where a lady was able to show her mother, I think it was a bee orchid and a fly orchid for the first time and that was a really lovely favourite find I think and other favourite finds they remind them of a special person you know there's just really lovely stories and it's been lovely scrolling through them all and, and reading all about them and that's one of the the real things about wildflower hunting generally isn't it that it reminds us of our childhood or of the people who originally showed us the wildflowers it's not just about the plants as it is also about the sort of experiences that come with it one of the things that's really struck me is the number of flowers that people posted that they found in car parks and that's been one of your favorite finds as well hasn't it it has yes um finding broadleaved hellebarine in Toys R Us actually car park and that was really thrilling because a botanist that I go out with with the Warrington plant group she showed it to me and I had no idea it was there at all so that was really exciting and what do they look like what are broadleaved hellebarines like well they're very beautiful quite hard to describe really they're sort of lovely orchid shape with this frilly lip part coming out and then they're sort of greenish colours and and pinky colours and they're quite broad leaves which look almost pleated I'd say. And how did you get into botany? Is it a recent thing for you or have you always really loved wildflowers? Well I have always loved wildflowers and I was very fortunate that my, my mother was very into botany and she taught me lots and lots of plant names when I was a child. So I've grown up really being interested in wildflowers and I actually went into horticulture um, so I did a degree in horticulture and then I got into teaching and I was, I've taught all sorts of different subjects and sort of botany went by the wayside for, for a few years and then about two years ago I decided that I really wanted to get back into it again and I signed up for Identiplant which is a really good 
introductionary to serious botany, an online course, and that was brilliant and I really, really enjoyed it. And that's what's got me back into it again. And you're a member of a local plant group, which is how you found the orchid in a car park, aren't you? Yes, that's right. And that's a re- I'd say that's a really good way if you want to go out and, you know, meet people that have got the same interests. I, I didn't come across really normal life, anybody who was as interested in plants as, as I am. So it was great to, to join a local group and meet up with people, you know, like-minded. What do you do in the plant group? Well, we have visited one nature reserve. We went to Norbend SSI and that was really good. But usually it's just around the local area. So we'll have a square that we have to go and then we look for whatever all the plants that we can find and then the, the botanist that we go with she records them all for BSBI. And so for those who are just getting into botany or maybe listening to this podcast by accident and they don't know anything about wildflowers at all what are your tips for starting to hunt for wildflowers and then to start getting a bit more serious like you have i think it's just to go out and see what you can find i think the winter months is a really good time actually to look because there's not an awful lot of flowers out and i think there's not so many distractions so you can really focus in on those ones that you find and look through a good book and and try and identify them and then when you do get you know a bit more into it because i think the thing I find is the more you learn the more you realize you don't know and then I think it's great to to join in with wildflower hour and also to to join a group too and I think it's surprising how many groups there are because you know before you really get into it you, you have no idea that these people are there so I would really recommend that it's been it's really helped me to learn a lot faster I think And finally, for next year, what is the find that you're really desperate for? Which wildflower do you really want to find in 2018? More orchids. I'd really like to see a lizard orchid and, you know, the monkey orchid. And I'd really like to go and see the slipper orchid. And I'd really like to go to Hutton Roof. I think, and see some of the orchids there. I live near Hutton Reef and it is so beautiful and so strange. So we should do a wildflower hour visit to Hutton Reef and podcast from the from the summit of that wonderful limestone pave. Oh, that'd be brilliant. Well, that was Rebecca Wheeler. And some of those stories have just been so wonderful that I asked a few Wildflower Hour members to share theirs. Hello, my name is Joanne. I live in Ancaster in Lincolnshire. We've lived here for just over 15 years. And literally round the corner from my house, we have the more closest nature reserve. And each year I'm told there's beautiful orchids that flower there. And I've never actually ventured into the paddock at the time that the orchids are, are flowering. So this year with Wildflower Hour, it was that little push that I needed and I took my camera and I was just amazed at all the beautiful beautiful orchids I found. I have no idea what any of them are so my my challenge for next year really is to have a closer look, get a really nice book and actually learn some more about the orchids which grow in my own village. So I'm Phoebe O'Brien and I live in East Clare um, so not right on the Burren, towards the east where Loch Derg is. And I'm a botanist. I qualified from Galway University just a few years ago. And I've been teaching some of the practical lessons there since, which includes the second year field trip with Maria Long, who's the Irish officer for BSBI. So I'm really lucky to get out there 
most years with her and teach first the second year students all about the flowers in the burren. So that usually happens at the end of May. So we just catch the gentians and the early purple orchids, all those nice things. But my mother really, really wanted to come out to the burren with me to see all the lovely things. And she's been asking me for a couple of years. So eventually this year in June, she came over and the gentians were over at that point, pretty much. But there were lots of other things. The burren's a bit like a cornucopia it just keeps you know another suite of species comes out so you'll have the gentians and early purple orchids and then you have the bonnet rose and the common spotted orchids lots of lovely things then harebells goldenrod and you end up with the ladies' tresses just before the autumn. So she came in June and she'd seen online about a walk which is on the farm belonging to Harry Yerken, who is a farming for conservation farmer. So on the burren, there's a special programme that farmers can sign up to, which lets them basically get paid for the amount of wildflowers that they have on their land. It's a really, really lovely programme. I think it's one of the only ones like it in Europe. And it's been running for a few years now so it's been through a few name changes it started as Burren Life and then now it's Farming for Conservation so she had picked this walk we drove out in June it was a lovely day it was actually a really long walk so I don't know quite how she managed it because she's 72 and it was 10 kilometers by the time we'd finished so on this farm they do offer you walking sticks made from hazel which grows abundantly on the burn but she didn't take one of those and we passed a really nice little spring you can have a drink of water and then climbed up to the high burn where Harry has belted Galloway cows and they're really cute they're quite small and they've got this white belt around their tummies anyway we were like I said walking for quite a long time across the limestone pavement and I was pointing out burn specialities to her as we went along um so there was still bloody cranes bill lots of nice things anyway I was pointing them out to her and it was her first time really to see these things so eventually she saw this red spike very strange looking red spike and she noticed it before I did and I was delighted because it was something I had never seen before a parasitic plant called thyme broom rape so anyway I managed to get a photograph not the best one but I was really excited to see it because I'd never seen any broom rapes before, in fact. We went on that day, finished that walk, and later we went to see a place where I know from Maria and a couple of the other botanists who specialise in the burren, an area where you can see bee orchids and fly orchids very close to each other. And it's kind of a little secret location, really, because it's so handy that you can just be sure that you're going to see them there. So I took her through this kind of rocky area to where there's a little enclosed, yeah, it's kind of very secret place and they're very small bee orchids and fly orchids if you're not used to seeing them you kind of expect something so much bigger seeing photos you know because when you see them close up their detail is amazing anyway so I showed her bee orchids and to me they look like little ducks that you know smiling ducks and the fly orchids which look like actually they look like the belted Galloway cows because they have this paler stripe and the dark horns so very very cute and she actually kind of bent down she could touch one with each hand in the same area so she was really delighted to see that she had never seen 
either of those orchids either. So it was really nice to get out with her in the barn because when I was a kid she had introduced me to botany really. We used to live in Brighton and that's quite near the South Downs so she would take us out on picnic and have a copy of Blamey and Fitter with her which had that nice, the old version has that the little simple key at the beginning where you can look at the different colours and numbers of petals of flowers and just start to get a feel for IDing different species like that. So yeah it was really nice. She started me with botany and this is kind of like coming back now that I've done all my studies and I'm actually able to take her and show her the treasures that live nearby me. My name is Tom Heller and my favourite find of the last year is Grass of Parnassus which I found uh, lots of whilst on holiday on the Isles of Mull and Col, the west coast of Scotland this summer. It's a small perennial herb found in marshes and wet grassland. The leaves are sort of heart-shaped emerging from a rosette at ground level while a single flower is, is born on this dead straight stalk about 30 centimetres tall and so there's just one flower really beautiful not particularly like any other flower I know with five white petals and slightly translucent veins and the thing is kind of facing straight upwards into the sky it's my favorite find for a variety of reasons it's particularly resonant for me because it was my mum's favorite wildflower it's the first opportunity I've had to see it in the wild since she died well 12 years ago. I'm very lucky to work with plants for my day job but this is the first time as as an adult I suppose that I've being able to explore some of the machair of West, Western Scotland. It's a very distinctive habitat. Shell sand, on the, particularly on the coastline, so windblown shell sand. And it's really amazing, a whole range of plants I don't get to see every day. And so the grass of Parnassus is really emblematic of a, a very happy holiday, leisurely looking at plants while the rest of my family uh, played on the beach. And because this is my podcast, I thought I'd be really cheeky and detain you for a couple minutes longer by telling you about my own favourite find. This wasn't on a nature reserve, it wasn't anywhere posh or glamorous, it was in a car park. I was taking the kids to the Science Centre in Glasgow, and I knew that Glasgow is one of the places with the biggest populations of broad-leaved Hellebrine orchids in the country. It's quite a bizarre fact. Glasgow is a wonderful city, incredibly beautiful, incredibly fun, lots of great culture, so I can understand why an orchid might want to make it its home. But as we were walking into the science centre, I noticed under some birch trees that were planted at the edge of the car park that there were some flowers that looked in structure from a distance quite a lot like broadleaf telebrines and had a look and they were indeed broadleaf telebrines. So we had a little look at them, we talked about what sort of orchids they were and then next to some of these orchids, and there were about a hundred of them growing under these trees completely unnoticed by people walking past, next to these normal broadleaf telebrines orchids was one that was almost glowing it was a bright white and purple there was no green in it at all it looked like the sort of thing that a child would draw when drawing fairy flowers it was an out of this world plant and it was a chlorotic broad-leaved hellebrine Epipactis hellebrine var monotropoides. And these plants don't photosynthesize because, like a lot of orchids, they get their food from fungal relationships underground, which means that they don't need to produce chlorophyll. So this plant was living just like the ones next to it. It was quite a bit smaller than the ones next to it, but it wasn't feeding from the light. And it was just such a beautiful plant. And I think the fact that I found it somewhere that no one had even bothered to look at. Everyone was going about their day, walking past this scrubby patch of trees near the science centre, completely unaware that one of the coolest things about science was just growing there quite happily, quite secretly, without anyone seeing. And to me, that's just a proof that there really is treasure wherever you look. And 
we need to open our eyes more to the world around us because everywhere we go, there are fascinating, clever, entrepreneurial plants growing. Some botanists don't just admire their favourite finds, they also try to conserve them in their local areas. Brian Laney is a Keen Wildflower Hour member and this week he won an award for his work in conserving plants in his local area over many years. I spoke to Brian about the work that he does and why he bothers doing this often in his free time. So Brian, you look after a number of endangered plants. What does that actually involve? The present time I'm looking after 12 sites across the Midlands and it varies from site to site and species to species. Say with uh, Cotswold Pennycrest, where I had some help with a uh, good friend Bill Clark, what that involved was lifting the vegetation. Say with a garden fork, you don't have to go too deep because the seed in the seed bank could be in that top layer. I lift the turf and vegetation up bash them against the garden fork because if there's any trapped seed in there, they'll drop into the open area. And then that is put in a pile and then you've got a completely bare soil area. Don't fork it over into the subsoil, no need for that. And then we see what happens, record through the season. So we've got soil pennycrest, which was in its low teens in the early noughties. It's now over 200 plants, thanks to probably my help. And what does that plant look like? Oh, it's a little plant with little white flowers, but it has bluey green leaves, little white flowers. Flower sometimes with the mild weather. I've seen specimens flowering in February, but I'd say March, especially into April. So it's an early flowering. And this embankment where we dug over, it needs disturbance, either by, if it's possible, animals, whatever animal, the hooves of sheep or cattle. And we've sadly, with some of these rare and endangered plants, the seed bank viability of certain species is only one or two years, like field cow wheat and shepherd's needle come to mind. And of course, corn cleave. Gallium tricornutum, critically endangered in Britain. Field cowwheat is another project. I'm looking after the only site in Bedfordshire, Brogborough Lake Edge. That's a lovely flower with it's sort of a reddy crimson colour with the florets which can be sort of yellowy between it. And it's um, semi-parasitic on grasses and herbs. And again, that needs disturbance. And sadly, out of the 12 projects I do, that one I'm really worried about. I've only had 13 plants this year. The shepherd's needle, that's critically endangered in Britain. And that's one of those arable weeds. It is one of the rapidly most declining plant communities in Great Britain. And that has white flowers in May, but it gets its name from the seeds. And when it goes to seed upright, and they look like a cluster of needles, they are bristly to the touch. So you have to stay quite committed to these plants, to, to managing their habitat on a regular basis basis because most people I think would imagine that a meadow is something that you leave and the plants just come and go as they please. Yeah you've got to cut and collect the cuttings up that stops nutrient enrichment because a lot of these wildflowers need that very poor soil but with some meadows because certain species flower late and seed late some that come to mind common knapweed and of course devil bits abius if you cut too early in the season those won't seed in time. One of the sites that I've visited that you've worked on was a roadside nature reserve where the Deptford pink grows. Tell me about that reserve and about that lovely little flower. So in recent years, because the population is, is low, I got, I'm, I've been involved with the Species Recovery Trust with Dominic Price, been giving him the records from this year, and I got permission from the highways and that to go again with the garden fork and disturb a big section, again lifting the turfs and vegetation out, bashing the fork. Well, I checked this year and there was about 15 flowering plants because the species is biennial. So with that plan is the good news is our highways and that all got sorted out and a large part of the embankment where it was very scrubbed over, they've gone and cut it all down. And when you've got 
that depth of pink in bloom? What does it look like? It's a lovely pink flower and it's multi-branch. But thanks to learning off botanists over the years, because it's all self-taught in me, it's no university or anything like that. And the key thing is recognising a lot of these plants by rosette alone. And that's been a very handy tool for searching for things and for the conservation work I do, which a lot of it is voluntary. I don't get paid for a lot of this. Brian, you do all of this on a voluntary basis. What keeps you doing this? Because it is hard, gruelling work. It's one thing going out to look at these lovely plants. It's a completely different thing conserving their habitat, removing grass clippings and so on. Why do you bother? It's definitely an obsession. It's a passion. The worrying thing is a lot of these populations of plants, sometimes there's no management going on. I look and I thought, if nothing's done, that'll be totally extinct. And then from several populations, say one plant, it'll gradually go down to one single population whole of Britain if the management's not done. It's a passion. It's trying to get these things back and keeping them going. And when you see, when you go to a, a site what you've done and disturbed and done the work and you see the plant in its hundreds, yeah, I do jump for joy. It's, it is an obsession, but that's what pushes me. That was Brian Laney on his efforts to conserve plants. And if you want to share the wildflower that excited you the most this year, you just need to post it on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag favourite find or in the Wildflower Hour Facebook group. If you post it on Instagram, you'll be entered into our competition, which will turn one lucky wildflower hunter's picture into an original botanical illustration by the artist Holly Crosley. You have until the 31st of December to enter. And that's all for this episode. But before we go, a reminder that our friends at Plant Life have offered everyone who takes part in Wildflower Hour a 50% discount on annual membership. Just enter WF Hour when you're checking out on their website. Plant Life is one of the organisations that we work alongside and support, along with the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, the Wildflower Society and the Wildlife Trusts. And don't forget to join in with the next Wildflower Hour on Sunday from 8 to 9pm. And have a look at our website, wildflowerhour.co.uk. Thanks for listening and see you again in a fortnight's time.